Our passage is John 6. Rather than read it all at one point, like we normally do on a Sunday morning, we're going to read it as we move uh, through the text, as we move through the message. So find John 6. We'll be picking up in verse 41 and going through verse 59. Our series is called Believe, and the title of our series comes from John 20, verse 30 to 31, that says this, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. As we go through this book week after week after week, I'm just reminded that this is a fascinating piece of literature. The way that John weaves these stories together, the way that he tells the story of Jesus, it is truly, truly just a remarkable piece of writing. But this book wasn't written to impress me or you or anyone else about how great of a writer John was. The book was written, these stories were written so that you and I would believe. It's not just written to satisfy intellectual curiosity, but it's written so that something would change in the deepest part of who we are in our hearts, and that we would come away not impressed with John, but impressed with Jesus, and that we would believe that he's the Christ, he's the Messiah, he's the Son of God. And when you believe like that, you get life in his name. And so we've titled the series, Believe. This morning, we're picking up in the middle of the Bread of Life discourse. And so some of these things I'm about to say are identical to what I shared with you last week. I just want to sort of lay the context of our passage the Bread of Life Discourse, John 6, 22 to 59, is connected to the feeding of the 5,000 that we talked about a little while back in John 6, 1 to 15. And this discourse, this sermon, was delivered in the synagogue in Capernaum. And so there's just a couple of things there I want you to be aware of. John 6, 4 says that it was during the Passover. John 6, 59 says Jesus shared this in the synagogue at Capernaum. When Christmas rolls around in a couple of weeks, I know Hobby Lobby and Walmart have been ready for Christmas for months, but when it actually gets here soon, what sort of Bible stories do we typically read at church during the Christmas season? Typically, you go to Sunday school and you don't really expect an Easter Sunday school lesson. You go and you think, well, this Christmas season, we're probably going to talk about Christmas. We're going to have some sort of Christmas series. You would be a little bit shocked if you came uh, the week before or the week after Christmas and I said, hey, we're going to celebrate Easter this morning. You would say, whoa, whoa, whoa that's, not, that's not what we're doing right now. It's the Christmas season. When Jesus is in the synagogue in Capernaum and it's during the Passover, what sort of passages do you think they're reading when they meet together, these Jewish believers meeting together in the synagogue? They're reading stories about the Passover. They're reading from the book of Exodus. They're remembering that God saved his people from Egypt through the waters of the Red Sea. They're remembering that God provided manna for his people when he brought them out into the wilderness. And all the details of this story in John 6 are supposed to be like bells going off, saying, wait a minute, Jesus did the same thing. He brought his people safely through the Sea of Galilee. He delivered them from that trial. And Jesus provided bread for hungry people in the wilderness. John is writing this story in a way that you come away from John 6 and you say, Jesus is playing the role of God 
in this story. This is just like what God did for his people in Exodus, and now Jesus is doing that for his people. And that's entirely appropriate because John is wanting you to see Jesus as the great I am. And that brings us to something I I pointed out last week. This passage contains the first of seven I am statements that you find in the Gospel of John. And I put them up last week, and I'll put them up again for you to see this morning. Jesus says, I'm the bread of life, I'm the light of the world, I'm the door, I'm the good shepherd, I'm the resurrection and the life, I am the way, the truth, and the life, I am the vine. All of these things Jesus is saying, I am this. And every time he says, I am, it's taking the people back to the book of Exodus when God reveals himself to Moses and he says, you tell them that the I am sent you. And Jesus, in this passage, for the first time, he throws one of these statements out and he says, I am the bread of life. Look with me at this last little thought before we get to the big idea. I think this is interesting. John mentions the Jews in our passage. And in the Gospel of John, he does that 71 times Almost always he's talking about the Jewish leaders who actively oppose Jesus. And this is just an interesting sort of literary device that John uses to help you track along with him. Up to this point in John 6, there's Jesus, and there's disciples, and there's a crowd. You go back and look at the the groups of people involved. It's Jesus and the disciples and a crowd of people. Halfway through the chapter, when this crowd turns on Jesus... John no longer says the crowd turned on him. He says the Jews did this. And John is not making a racial statement. He's not making an ethnic statement. He's not sort of trying to single them out for their DNA lineage. What he's saying is this is the group actively opposed to Jesus. They don't like what he's doing. They don't like what he's saying. There may be some sort of appearance of devotion at times. But when it really gets down to the bottom level, the heart level, these people are opposed to Jesus. And he singles them out with this phrase, the Jews. The big idea this morning is the same as the big idea last week. It's the same big chunk of scripture here. We must believe that Jesus is the bread of life. We're going to talk about what that means this morning. What does it mean to believe that Jesus is the bread of life? I'm going to start with a definition. This is from dictionary.com. And the definition is a definition of the word grumble. To complain or protest about something in a bad-tempered but typically muted way. You know anybody who's really good at that? My guess is you know somebody who's really good at that. Maybe you're really good at that. I don't know. Grumbling. I think social media has made this worse in our culture. Because we all sort of get on social media and we all believe that our grumbling is justified. Even when you see other people doing it and you can see how sort of just icky it is. When it's us, we think, well, I deserve to grumble in this situation. And we all just sort of think, people would be better off if they heard my grumbling. Like it's going to, they need to know it. They need to know how put out I am or how upset I am. And so we're people who grumble and Social media lets us share that. And really, in the end, I don't think it helps anybody when we grumble, whether you do it privately and quietly or whether you do this and you broadcast it for anyone and everyone to see and to hear. C.S. Lewis said something interesting about grumbling. He said this, Hell begins with a grumbling mood, always complaining, always blaming others. 
That's an interesting thought. When you pick up in John 6, verse 41, and you read that the Jews grumbled about him. Why were they grumbling? They were grumbling about Jesus because he said, I'm the bread that came down from heaven. I'm the bread of life. And they said, wait a minute, wait a minute. Isn't this Jesus, the son of Joseph, his father and his mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? And they're grumbling about him. I don't want you to miss the broader pattern that is really important to understanding John 6, and it's really important to understanding the last little part of John 6 that we're going to talk about this morning. And the broader pattern is the Passover. Just think about the pattern in the Old Testament. God comes and he saves his people through a watery trial. He provides bread for them in the wilderness to sustain them. And in response, what do the people do to God? They grumble. Look what we read in the book of Exodus, chapter 16. It says, They set out from Elim, all the congregation of the people of Israel. They came to the wilderness of Sin between Elim and Sinai on the 15th day of the second month after they departed from the land of Egypt. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said, here was their grumbling. Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full, for you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. When you read their grumbling in the book of Exodus, it's an ugly scene. Their ungratefulness and their hostility toward Moses and Aaron, which is really hostility to the Lord, is just frightening to read about. And the exact same thing is playing out in John 6. Jesus has saved his disciples on the Sea of Galilee from a watery trial. He's provided bread for hungry people to eat. And in response, as Jesus starts to speak to them, they are grumbling towards Jesus. They are grumbling about Jesus. That word grumble is what your sixth grade teacher would call an onomatopoeia. You remember that when you were growing up? One of those words that sounds like what it means. Like here's some examples. Sizzle. Like if you say it just right, it actually you can hear the bacon sizzling on the skillet, right? Sizzle, sizzle, sizzle. You guys are good. You got it. Bang. Bang. Sounds like something going off. Or whoosh. It sounds like something flying through. All of these words sound like the activity that they're describing. That's true for the word grumble, 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 grumble. In the King James Version, it's murmur, also an onomatopoeia. Murmur, 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 murmur. You can just see the people on the back row, hands here, eyes looking back and forth, murmur, 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 murmur. The Greek word is also an onomatopoeia. It's gunguzo, gunguzo. Gunguzo, gunguzo. They're just under their breath, muttering, murmuring, grumbling. They've heard Jesus say, I am the bread that came down from heaven. And their response is to grumble about Jesus. What does it mean that Jesus is the bread of life? We talked about this last week. We'll move through this very quickly. Number one, it means he came from heaven. And the parallel is the manna in the Old Testament. The manna that the people ate was otherworldly. 
It was a miraculous provision. Jesus is a, an otherworldly provision. He's not just one of us, but he has come down to be one of us. He came from heaven. Secondly, he provides true life. Manna gave them physical life one day at a time. Jesus gives us eternal life. We talked about that last week, and we'll talk about it again this morning. And thirdly, Jesus gives lasting satisfaction. The manna satisfied your hunger a little bit at a time, one meal at a time, one day at a time. Jesus says, if you come to me, you will never be thirsty. You will never be hungry. And he's not saying you can skip lunch in, a, in an hour or so. He's saying, I will satisfy the deepest, truest longing of your soul. That's what it means that Jesus is the bread of life. And the Jews, these people opposed to Jesus, they heard him talk about this and there was, their response was grumbling. And this is the point that I think is the most fascinating aspect of the verses we're looking at this morning, right? Jesus has provided bread and they've come for more bread and Jesus has said a few things to them. Verse 41 Notice we're in the middle of the discourse. They're grumbling. They're grumbling. And if your idea of Jesus is that he's some sort of peace-loving hippie out to just you know, sing kumbaya with everyone and let's all get along, what you really expect Jesus to do at this point is to say, whoa, 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 let's try to clear up this misunderstanding. Wait, 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 I think you guys have me all wrong. I, I don't want you to be mad at me. I don't want you to grumble at me. I don't want you to murmur about this. Let's see if we can get on the same page here. There is absolutely none of that. In fact, as they're grumbling, Jesus begins to respond to them, and he begins to say some of the most offensive things you will find in the entire Bible. And by the end of this story, we'll get to it next week, these people go from their seeking Jesus because they want bread, to now they're grumbling and they're murmuring about Jesus, to at the end of it, they're done with Jesus. They're outraged with Jesus. They're deeply offended at the things that he's saying. And nowhere in that process does Jesus try to smooth things over. He simply lets the chips fall where they may. And as we talk about some of these things this morning, some of you may say, I don't know that I really like what the preacher's saying this morning. I don't know that I really like what this church is talking about. And that may be you. And you just need to understand you're in the same spot as these Jews were, grumbling, murmuring about Jesus, in the end, outraged that he would say things so offensive. And you've got to wrestle with the question, am I going to do what these Jews did and just walk away in disgust or am I going to submit to Jesus and believe that he's the Christ, the Son of God, who came to give eternal life? Those are the two options that are set before you. So what does this passage teach me about believing in Jesus? Number one, believing in Jesus is impossible apart from God's grace. It is impossible. It is not possible apart from God's grace in your life. Look at verse 43. Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. And you expect him to, here's where we smooth it over. Instead, he says this, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I'll raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father 
comes to me. When Jesus uses the word can in verse 44, he's talking about ability. And what he's saying to these people is, don't grumble. Unless the Father draws you, unless he graciously draws you to me, you can't come. And you can try to rephrase that and reshape that if it makes you uncomfortable. You can try to put whatever kind of spin you want to put on it. It's just very obvious what it says. And it comes up later in the chapter in case you think, oh, certainly he didn't mean that. He's going to come back later. We'll see it next week and say, oh, no, that's exactly what I meant. You can't do it unless the Father draws you. And you say, well, what does it mean to draw? Well, other places in the New Testament, that word quote-unquote, draw is used. Sometimes it's used to describe somebody pulling a sword out of a sheath, right? There's action involved, and the end result is the sword comes out of the sheath. Sometimes it's used to describe Paul and his friend Silas being, quote, drawn, or we would say dragged to the authorities, right? They're preaching, the crowd is outraged, they grab them, and they drag them to the authorities. At times, this same word is used of Peter and the disciples fishing, and they throw the nets in, and Jesus always helps them catch fish in the gospel. So they catch fish, and they start to draw the net in. They drag the net in. They pull the net in. That's the verb Jesus uses here. He says, you cannot come to the Father. You cannot come to me unless the Father draws you. And then he quotes the prophets. He says, it's said in the prophets. It's written in the prophets. They will be taught by God. And you can look it up in Isaiah and you can look it up in Jeremiah. Right? Isaiah 54, Jeremiah 31. These are passages that talk about the new covenant. And God is saying through Isaiah and through Jeremiah, look, in the new covenant, I'm going to do a new work in my people and I'm going to teach them so that they understand my word in a way that's not been true up to this point. And so this is what Jesus is saying. No one can come to Jesus unless the Father draws them and teaches them. Now, my guess is for most of us, we're not all that bothered when Jesus says God needs to draw you and God needs to teach you. Most of us would say, okay, yes, I need God to do that in my life. The offensive part for us and for them was when Jesus says, and I'll just read it again from verse 44, no one can come to me. No one has the ability left to themselves to come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them. You don't have it in yourself. I don't think this is a new biblical idea that pops up into the scriptures in John 6.44. I think you see this from the beginning of the Bible all the way to the end. And I'm just going to put a few verses up that sort of reinforce what Jesus is saying here in John 6. Look at Genesis 6. Can we put it up on the screen? Here it is. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Jesus is saying, that's you. Left to yourself, your heart is evil, wicked. It's bent against me, away from me. That's the condition of your heart, apart from God's grace. Look what we read in Psalm 51.5. David is confessing sin and he says, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. And what David is saying is, this is a problem I was born with. It's not a situation I worked myself into. I was born in this condition. My heart was broken 
from the time that I was born. Jeremiah says it this way, Jeremiah 17, 9. Your heart is deceitful above all things. It's the most deceitful thing. It's sick, desperately sick. Your heart doesn't work right. Left to yourself, your heart doesn't want or love Jesus. Let's go to the New Testament. John 8, 34. Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. That's us. We're slaves to sin. We're in bondage to sin. We can't set ourselves free. We need someone else to set us free. Just like the Hebrews in Egypt couldn't set themselves free, we can't set ourselves free. Romans 3, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they've become worthless. No one does good, not even one. I don't know how much more clear Paul can make it. And he's quoting two different psalms that say the exact same thing. And then Paul says it like this to the Ephesians. Ephesians 2.1, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. That was your condition apart from God's grace. Spiritually dead. Jesus adds to that mountain of evidence and he says, here's, here's what it all means. John 6.44. You're not going to like this. They didn't like it. But Jesus says it like this, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. This is really the most basic fundamental difference between the Christian worldview and every other worldview, every other faith system, every other belief system. Every other faith, belief system, worldview on the earth says, here's the problem and here's what you need to do about it. X, Y, Z, one, two, three, A, B, C. Here's the steps that you need to take. And Jesus says, here's the problem. There's not a thing you can do about it. You can't. The good news is God can. And he does. And if you're making notes in your Bible, you might circle John 6, 44. And you might draw a line back up to John 6, 37. Where Jesus says, all the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes, I will never cast out. You can't do it unless God draws you, but he's going to give people to the Son, and they are going to come. All of them are going to come. And if you come, whoever you are, if you come, you will not be cast out. But the point in verse 44 and verse 45 is that you must be taught by God. You must be drawn by God. Otherwise, you don't have the ability to come. Right? Salvation, coming to Jesus, is impossible apart from God's grace. Secondly, Jesus ups the ante. Believing in Jesus is the only way for sinners to be saved. There is no other way to be saved, to have your sins forgiven. There's no other way to be brought back to the Father but through Jesus. Look what he says in verse 46. It's not like anyone has seen the Father except the one who is from God, except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. No one else. I'm the one who comes from the Father. It's not Muhammad. It's not Buddha. It's not Krishna. It's not Joseph Smith. It's not any of the other imposters. I am the one who knows the Father. I am the one sent from the Father. I am the one who's seen the Father. And I'm the only way you can get back to the Father. This is exactly what Jesus says in John 14, 6. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There is only one way. Our culture hears that and is deeply offended. Can I tell you what? 2,000 years ago, they heard that, they were deeply offended. That's not just a culture thing, that's a human heart thing. That idea is offensive 
to fallen sinful people. Whether you live 2,000 years ago on the other side of the earth or whether you live today in the here and now. It's offensive to people to say, what do you mean there's only one? What do you mean it has to be through Jesus? What do you mean that there's no other way to have eternal life? Where do you people get off with this narrow-minded, exclusive idea that Jesus is the only way? Who says you get to be the only right one? Why can't all roads lead up to the same mountain peak? And when you come to a verse like this, when you come to an idea like this, you really have a choice. One is you can be offended. And you can say, oh, I don't like that. That doesn't seem right to me. It seems too narrow to me. That excludes a lot of people and I'm not comfortable with it. That's one approach. The second approach is to stop for a second and to think about who we are as sinners. And to remind yourself Apart from God's gracious work in my life, I can't come to him. I can't make my way back to him. I can't fight and claw and pull and, and earn my way back into a right relationship with him. And rather than be offended at it, what you can do is say, what a marvelous mystery that God in his grace has provided a way. Why did he provide a way? I couldn't do it on my own, and he wasn't obligated to do it, and he has graciously provided a way through his son, Jesus Christ, for sinful people like us to know life. You can be offended, or you can be thankful. You can grumble, or you can worship. It's impossible apart from God's grace. There's the, Jesus is the only way for sinners to be saved. Thirdly, believing in Jesus results in eternal life. And the emphasis I'm trying to put on this this morning is the idea that it doesn't result in your best life now. It results in eternal life. And Jesus says that. John 6, 47. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I'm the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I give for the life of the world is my flesh. Jesus gives us eternal life. The manna kept them alive one day at a time. Jesus says, I'm the bread from heaven. I'm the true bread. I'm the, the living bread. And I give eternal life. Next month marks my 13th year being a pastor. And... Uh, I've been here for about five and a half years now, and on the whole, I've done fewer funerals here than any other church that I've pastored. However, in the last year, this last going back to January, I've done more funerals than I have in one single calendar year. So I haven't done a whole lot here, but we've sort of bunched a lot of them in to 2019. We've done two in the last two weeks, and both of them requested the song Beulah Land. Sweet Beulah Land. And that's kind of an old school song that a lot of people remember singing in, you know, the old days in church. And it's a song that a lot of people like to, to have sung at a funeral. This is the first line of the song. I'm kind of homesick for a country to which I've never been before. This isn't like I want to go home to what I'm used to. This is like I feel right now like it's just something missing 
someone missing. It's not all right. All the pieces aren't in the place where they belong, and I don't think I'm going to find it here. I'm missing a place that I've never been before. And I think the song is describing the deepest longing of our hearts. When you just sort of have that sense of, you know what? This is not home. This is not satisfying. This is not ultimate. There may be fleeting joys and fleeting pleasures here, but they don't last. And I just feel like I'm missing a place. I'm homesick for a place that I haven't been yet. And I think that's what Jesus is tapping into when he says, I'm giving you eternal life. These people in John 6 are coming to Jesus and all they can focus on is today. And what they're saying to Jesus is, we want bread today. You gave us bread yesterday and we want more bread today. And Jesus is is saying to them, in essence, he's pleading with them and he's saying, I have something so much better for you than a loaf of bread. I came to give you eternal life, not a piece of toast. Like, do you see what you're choosing over eternal life? You're angry and you're frustrated and you're grumbling with me because you want bread and I'm offering you eternity. I'm telling you, this is the way to the country that you're homesick for. That piece of bread is not going to satisfy that longing. Too oftentimes in church, we turn the Bible into spiritual life hacks. How to make your life better today. How to fix this in your life in three easy steps. And there's no question that the Bible has some truths and some principles and some commands that will change your life today. It will do that. And it will make your life better today. Not like the health and wealth guys say, but it will change your life for the better today. There's no question about that. Just don't forget this. Jesus didn't come that we might have a better time here on earth. He came that we might have eternal life. This book is not just, you ever heard this B-I-B-L-E, basic instructions before leaving earth? It's way better than that. It's way better than here's some tips to make your life better before you die. This is a story about what God has done to save people who could have never saved themselves. It's about what God has done through his son, Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, to provide eternal life. And these people come to Jesus and all they can think about is bread. All they want is today, I'm hungry. And Jesus is saying, I have something that is so much better, so much realer. It's realer than the physical piece of bread that you hold in your hand and that you put in your mouth and that goes into your stomach. I have something more real and lasting and true than that, eternal life. They weren't interested. Number four, believing in Jesus is centered on the sacrifice Jesus made on the cross. That's the focus of our faith, is the cross. And I realize that the cross is not specifically mentioned in here, but I want to explain to you how I get that idea, and I want you to see it from the text. Verse 51 Jesus says, the bread I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. 
Verse 52, the Jews are disputing amongst themselves. It sparks an argument. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Right? They're grumbling. They're murmuring. Look how Jesus responds. Verse 53, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. My flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and they died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. And he said this in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. You can Google this and you can pull out Bible commentaries and you can find all kinds of debates. It's been 2,000 years and people argue and they debate. What in the world did Jesus mean when he said, you need to eat my flesh and drink my blood? The debate started right here in verse 52 and 2,000 years later, we're still debating it. And there's an awful lot of Bible scholars, commentators that say what he's talking about is the Lord's Supper. This is like secret code For the Lord's Supper, when we take the bread and the blood, I don't think that has anything to do with what Jesus is talking about here at all. It's it's all out of sequence and out out of order, and these people would have had no ability to understand that, and I don't think it's what Jesus is saying at all. Other people say, you know, this... This eating and drinking is just kind of like a metaphor. It's just Jesus trying to make a point, and there is a little bit of that in there. But I was shocked this week as I read all the arguments and all the theories. Almost no one brings up the fact that Jesus said this during the Passover season. And I think if you forget that, you miss the whole point of what Jesus is trying to say. I don't think the emphasis is on the eating the flesh and the drinking and the blood so much is the emphasis is on Jesus saying, I'm the sacrifice. I'm the sacrifice. I just want you to go back with me in your mind. I want you to think about the Passover. Exodus 12. It's the night before the people leave Egypt. And they're about to celebrate the very first Passover. And through Moses, God has said to the people, you're each going to take a lamb Lamb's going to be with you for a couple of days. And then on the night, when I tell you it's the night, you're going to take that lamb and you're going to cut its throat. Right? You're going to kill the lamb. And you're going to take the blood that spills from the lamb and you're going to take it out to the door of your house and you're going to wipe that blood on the sides of your door and the top of the door. And the blood's going to be there and the blood's going to be a, a sign for you. That's what he says. It's going to be a sign for you. And when death passes through the land, if you've applied the blood to the outside of your house, death is going to pass over. He also says to the people, after you take that blood and smear it on the door, you go back inside the house with your family, and what do you do with the dead lamb? You have dinner. You eat it. You're going to roast it on the fire, and you're going to eat it for dinner, And whatever's left over, you're going to burn in the morning. But you are going to eat that lamb for dinner. And there's two ways that the people sort of joined in accepting this sacrifice on their behalf. One was smearing the blood on the door, and the other was eating the Passover lamb. If you've been reading through the Gospel of John, what has John told us about Jesus? Behold, the Lamb of God... Who takes away the sin of the world. 
And he says the same thing. This is the, the voice of John the Baptist speaking. Verse 36, chapter 1. Behold the Lamb of God. And all those Passover lambs were a picture of what God would do for his people later. None of those people survived the Passover in Egypt because of that lamb. It's because of their faith in what God was going to do for them. And Jesus is looking at these people. It's the Passover season. The disciples have been brought through a watery trial. The people have been given bread in the wilderness. There's grumbling. All the details are in place. And Jesus says, you know what? I'm the sacrifice. This is how it's going to happen. Just like those lambs were a sacrifice in the Old Testament, I'm going to be the true sacrifice. I'm going to give my life. And just like those people had to smear the blood on the doorstep or on the, the, the doorframe and they had to eat the Passover lamb, you're going to need to receive this sacrifice. You're going to need to eat. You're going to need to drink. What he's saying to them is you have to believe. I'm the sacrifice, not the lambs, me. I'm going to give my life for yours. I'm going to die your death. I'm going to take the wrath of the Father so that you can have eternal life. Focused on the cross. These people heard it and they grumbled. People hear it today and they grumble. And they say, I don't like Jesus saying that I can't do it. I can do it. Can do it. They say, I don't like Jesus saying that there's no other way that I have to come through him. I don't like Jesus saying that he, he didn't come to make my life better right now, but he came to give me eternal life. I want life better right now. People say, I don't like this idea that Jesus had to die on a cross. That's primitive and bloody and I don't like it. They grumbled. You can grumble. Or you can believe. And as the people of God, we gather around this story and we listen to the words from Jesus. And many of us, as offensive and narrow-minded and as preposterous and outlandish as it may seem, you read this story and you say, it's true. Right? That's The Father has drawn you. You read this story and you say, I believe that. That's because the Father has taught you and been gracious to you. And these two responses sit before us today. What will you do? How will you respond to what Jesus says? Will you grumble or will you believe? My prayer is that we believe. And I want to pray for you to that end.